Welcome back to the 10 Blocks podcast. This is Brian Anderson, the editor of City Journal, and I'm very pleased to welcome on the show today Anthony Daniels, known to our readers by his pen name Theodore Dalrymple, a retired physician who once practiced in a British inner city hospital and prison. Tony is one of the English-speaking world's great writers, most original writers. He was once described by Arts and Letters Daily as the Orwell of our time, and Peggy Noonan calls him the best doctor writer since William Carlos Williams. His work has appeared not only in City Journal, but in multiple publications, ranging from the Wall Street Journal to the New Criterion to National Review. Uh, He is the author of at least two dozen books, one of which we will discuss today. Tony's here in New York, and we're happy to have him on 10 Blocks. We'll take a quick break, and we'll be back with Theodore Dalrymple after the music. Hello again, everyone. This is Brian Anderson, editor of City Journal. Joining us in the studio is Anthony Daniels, better known to our readers as Theodore Dalrymple. We gave a longer introduction at the start of the show, but he's written nearly 500 articles short and long for us since 1994, and it's an honor to finally have him on the podcast. Uh, Tony, your, your new book looks uh, at the fields of medicine and health through the lens of the New England Journal of Medicine. The book is called False Positive, A Year of Error, Omission, and Political Correctness in the New England Journal of Medicine. Uh, Perhaps you could describe what led you to write this book and how you proceeded. Well, I started, uh, I was inspired, if that's the word, to write it uh, uh, by by a request from my French nephew, who's a medical student in Paris, who had an exam on how to uh, read uh, medical papers, medical literature, medical journals. And I gave him a few rules of thumb. and he passed the exam. And uh, I thought, well, I would look at the journal, follow it care, clo- more closely than usual uh, to see how far uh, my uh, rules of thumb were obeyed in the journal. And so what I did is I just took uh, a journal, uh, every week's journal, and uh, selected something from it not quite at random, it had to be something that was interesting to me, uh, and, and examined uh, what it said, and, and both uh, the social commentary and the more scientific papers. I think our readers would be interested in the social commentary side. You would assume a journal of medicine is going to be focusing on medicine, but often it's spilled over into uh, a kind of political correctness, if your argument is... Yes, that that's true. I mean, uh, there are lots of uh, examples of that. For example, I, I mentioned a letter from the Netherlands uh, about uh, the glories of euthanasia in, uh, in the Netherlands. And uh, the uh, author proudly stated that 92% of the 6,000 people who are... Uh, euthanized or encouraged to commit suicide by their doctors, 92% of them had serious medical conditions. Now, if I were editor of the uh, New England Journal, I would say, well, what about the other 8%? Let's have a bit of clarification there. But it wasn't even a question. Mm -hmm. Uh, And uh, and I suspect, I can't prove, it's because 
of uh, a, a an approval, a desire to to make uh, euthanasia look good. What other areas uh, do you cover in false positive uh, where you do see this kind of, you know, um, errors or omissions or, or bracketing of important information, which does seem to have a kind of political subtext? Well, it, it infects quite a lot uh, of even the more technical things, like, for example, there was a paper uh, about air pollution, the relationship of air pollution and total death rate in, uh, in the United States, and it was a very large study. It looked at a population of 60 million people, so it wasn't a tiny study, and it was extremely sophisticated in, uh, in some of its uh, statistical manipulations. And what it found is that there, there was a relationship. The more polluted the air, the, the, um, the higher the death rate. Uh, and as is very often the case in such a paper, they concluded that the relationship was causative and a, a statistical association is causative. And then they recommended, this paper recommended, uh, changing the air um, of the, really of, of a very large a part of the country without thinking about the cost. But also making this fundamental error that uh, a statistical association is causation. Now, I don't believe that, that the fact that they found this, that they, that they recommended uh, changing almost everything uh, was as a result of what they found. I think that was a starting point for them, probably. Uh, and if you looked at statistical association of air quality, you could probably find a, an association with, say, murder or illegitimate birth, but you wouldn't say that the air quality caused murder or illegitimate right, birth. Right, yes. <laughs> yes, it's making a pretty pretty big leap. This, um, this year, 2019, marks a quarter century of writing for City Journal, yeah. where you've explored some of these themes that you've looked at, looking at in, in false positive. Um, you've written this regular quarterly feature for us, Oh to Be in England, um, some of your your earlier books are compilations of City Journal essays. One recurring current in this work um, is, is to look at what might be called uh, criminal or underclass behavior. Um, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of some of your more chilling stories, uh, one you did in 2015 called Into Darkness, or, or one the next year, It's Your Fault I Killed. And really, this theme goes back to your very first essay for City Journal, The Knife Went In. Uh, what has drawn you to uh, look at um, what many people would find to be a morbid subject of criminal behavior, self-destructive behavior? Well, I think it's, uh, first of all, it's uh, actually statistically quite important because there's a large proportion of the population actually living like this. But it's philosophically of interest because one of the explanations of ill behavior, if you like, is a kind of mechanical one that, uh, that uh, they have certain, people have certain experiences and uh, they react to them in a, a certain self-destructive uh, way as if their behavior were that of a billiard ball being impacted by another billiard ball. So fundamentally my, uh, I suppose the underlying theme is that this is a wrong way to conceive of 
social problems and of human problems, there is all, almost always, not 100%, but almost always agency. Agency is extremely important. You don't deny that things are more difficult for some people than for others. Uh, but if you deny the agency of people, then you, treat, you begin to treat them as objects. Uh, rather than as subjects. It's dehumanizing. It's dehumanizing, yes. So to give you an example, the idea, and this is a medical example, that heroin addiction is an illness which just strikes you out of the blue, like perhaps uh, Parkinson's disease strikes you out of the blue, is completely false, and it's, to my mind, obviously false. But if you take the view that it is just an illness, then first of all, the person who suffers it has the reasonable expectation that the doctor will cure him of it without really any effort on his own uh, part. Uh, but it also means that, theoretically at any rate, you could do extremely nasty things to a person uh, just because you're saying he's really an object he can't do other than he does do. And uh, I found this, uh, not only is it horrible, but it's completely unrealistic. We've seen a turn to this in um, recent uh, positions in the law enforcement community, um, certainly among left-wing um, attorney generals, attorneys general who are, are increasingly being appointed in American cities. There's a big push now to uh, decriminalize lower-level infractions, and also a kind of return to the 70s idea that um, that even violent criminals are really just reacting to their environment, this billiard ball idea yeah. that you mentioned. Uh, your forthcoming essay in City Journal is looking at, at this, uh, this kind of mindset in England, and maybe you could say a bit about what's going on there with regard to crime. Well, there's been a very... Uh, a very strong current in British intellectual uh, circles that criminality is akin to an illness uh, and therefore it's uh, wrong to treat it as a uh, something that people have any control over and of course this becomes a self-fulfilling prop prophecy. In England the leniency of, uh, of our criminal justice system precisely I think because of our uh, our, our tendency to sociologize everything, uh, to say that people are not agents because of an unhappy childhood or whatever it is that you say it is, inequality or whatever it is, uh, this actually uh, promotes criminality because it's a fairly obvious thought that actually what happens to you, uh, what, what the results of crime are, to you can affect uh, uh, whether you commit it or not. Right. But this is something that is denied. It, it, it's as if criminals didn't have thought processes like us. They're, they're completely different from, uh, from uh, people like us. But they're not different from people like us. On the whole, there are one or two exceptions, of course. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but it's not true uh, grosso modo. And if you look at uh, the British criminal justice system, I, I'm interested in, in Britain there's constant propaganda about how many uh, we have the highest rate of imprisonment in Western Europe. Uh, and the, the measure is per head of population. But that's an absurd measure. It's actually uh, per crime committed. 
And if you look at the difference between Spain and Britain, for example, we have roughly the same number of uh, prisoners uh, per head of population. But in Spain, there are six times as many prisoners per violent crime, with the not surprising result that there is much less a violent crime in Spain than in Britain. Over here again, to turn to the American context, there is a lot of talk about uh, the, the plague of mass incarceration. So yeah. there is a push to release what are supposedly nonviolent criminals back into the streets. The reality is that a lot of these, a lot of these prisoners are not uh, nonviolent. In fact, most prisoners have committed very serious felonies in America. And I remember you saying once that um, given the number of crimes that the typical criminal commits before he's finally incarcerated, the jail should be even more filled with people, right? Yes, and, and actually uh, in Britain at any rate, I can't speak for the United States, should be there for longer. I mean, it is, it's very curious how people say that prison doesn't work because a high proportion of prisoners, uh, when they come out, uh, commit offences uh, again. And I don't think I've ever seen anywhere in a British publication this might indicate that actually they should be in prison for longer. Another very obvious consideration which is completely beyond the British intellectual class is that the uh, number of victims of crime is very much greater than the number of uh, perpetrators. So each perpetrator actually creates large numbers of victims. And therefore, it's not kind to, uh, to people who live in criminal, uh, criminal uh, area, areas where there's a lot of criminality not to deal properly with the criminals. I mean, we deal with criminality as if it is a benefit received by the poor instead of what it is, one of the great hardships of being poor. That's right, because they're the poor people in America are certainly uh, the disproportionate victims of crime. Yeah. Um, and th this seems to me so obvious a consideration that I don't understand how intellectuals can't or won't grasp it. Um, another debate that's been cropping up that you've written on, uh, I think, in an illuminating way, is that over um, the legalization of drugs, uh, there is a significant uh, push in the United States for legalizing cannabis now, yes. uh, not just for medical purposes, but for recreational purposes. Yes. But there is starting to be a pushback on that because um, there, there is uh, significant evidence that this might not be such a good move from a public policy standpoint or from a public health yes. standpoint. Maybe you could uh, talk a bit about that. Well, one of, the, one of the arguments for, <clears throat> for legalization is that the harm of drugs, of taking what are currently illicit drugs, is entirely from their illegal, or largely from their illegal status. And that if you uh, could just go down to your drugstore and buy a little cocaine, for example, for yourself or whatever it is that you want, and, and it were treated like chocolate or some other commodity, uh, there, would be, there would be no ill consequences. But actually what we have seen in the United States, and where I think there's been a kind of scandalous failure to recognize it until very recently, is that the consequences of taking opioids, even when they are norm prescribed 
perfectly legally, are, have been catastrophic. And so it is not true that the consequences of widespread drug use, uh, the ill consequences, are solely or even largely caused by the illegality. Um, there is, of course, another argument, uh, which is a, a very libertarian argument, um, that everyone should be allowed to put into his own body anything that he likes. But once you've said that, and I think most people would say, well, there has to be some control over alcohol and so on and so forth, the question isn't whether there should be any control or not, but where that control actually is. And it, you can have it more liberal or less liberal as you, as you like, but I think it's, I really don't think it's conceivable as I've indicated, that you could just go down to your drugstore or your convenience store and say, well, I'd like a little cocaine or I'd like some PCP or right. angel dust or, or, oh. or fentanyl or whatever. I mean, it just doesn't seem to me very realistic. Not yet. Um, <laughs> um, you know, you've written an enormous amount on culture for us. Yes. Um, in particular, uh, you've been drawn to the works of Shakespeare, and I wonder what is it in Shakespeare, particularly among the greats of literature, that that seems to resonate so much with you? Well, I think Shakespeare is actually unique. Of course, I can't say that there's nothing like it anywhere else because I haven't read everything else, so I can't possibly. But it's the only thing, it's the only, um, uh, the only body of work that seems to me uh, extraordinary in a, in a special way. If, for example, you read the speeches of Richard II or hear them, it's not merely that you see, the, you, are, you look at and sympathize with uh, someone who has fallen from a high position, who, who incidentally is not a good person. There's no suggestion that he's a, a fallen hero. He's, not, he's an average, perhaps an average person with weaknesses, and you see how far he falls. But the extraordinary thing is, at any rate for me, is that uh, when you read it, you actually become Richard II. You are Richard II. And this happens over and over and over again. And many of the things, uh, uh, John um, Gross, who was a wonderful man, Critic, yes. a great critic and mm -hmm. a, who knew more about English literature than anybody I've ever met, uh, points out about, um, uh, about Shylock and his wonderful book about Shylock, Shylock's great speech, you know, hath not a Jew eyes and that kind of thing, says that you can read it a hundred times and it never loses its impact. And I've actually tried reading it many times uh, straight over. And it's true. It, it, but if you read it the 20th time, the 100th time, the impact on you is as great uh, as, the, as the first time. And I don't think there's anything quite like that. Uh, and uh, there's, almost, there's almost no human situation that uh, Shakespeare hasn't thought of. Uh, I think you're, you're going to have a book, a length treatment of Shakespeare pretty soon. We've got enough of those essays. We could probably turn them into a book pretty soon. All right. Well, I must do some more. Yeah. They've been great. Um, 
Just a question, I think, on, on your own um, method of working and uh, what, what is your typical day like? Because you're an incredibly productive writer, don't seem to suffer from writer's block. Uh, you, you can often uh, deliver very sharply done short editorials for us um, on things that are going on in the news. Um, mm. I'm just curious, what, how do you spend your days these days? You're not practicing. I'm not practicing. I used to right. practice. I used to act. I, I can't imagine having, I couldn't do it now, but I used to go to work and right. be a doctor and I'd be on duty at night and then I'd also write three articles a day. And so I, uh, I couldn't do that now. Uh, I, uh, I don't suffer from uh, writer's cramp. It's more like writer's diarrhea. Right? <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> but uh, anyhow, um, but I, uh, I find the best time uh, to write is immediately I get up and uh, uh, I often now spend a couple of hours in bed uh, writing. My wife very kindly brings me coffee and uh, and maybe some toast and um, so I do do that I, I can't really write more than four hours at a time unless someone uh, calls me and um, and offers me some money actually <laughs> <laughs> that's always a motivation so are you doing any kind of uh, cons uh, consulting with prisons no not any no, no, so no, that's no, no. that's, no, that's all over yes well that covers a range of uh, topics here, Tony. Uh, it has been a remarkable 25 years. I hope we can do another 25 years. <laughs> Unlikely, <laughs> but I hope so never too. Know. <laughs> Dolly's Medical Innovations. I um, wanted to thank you very much, and uh, uh, good luck with the new book. Uh, the new book, again, is called False Positive. It is out from Encounter um, Im imminently. And uh, we, we love your writing here at City Journal, and I'm mm -hmm. very proud to be publishing it. Thank you very much, and I'm uh, very grateful to you. Uh, one, one last announcement. We've created a new email address for the show, so if listeners want to get in touch and drop a comment or share an idea, you can now email us directly at podcast at city-journal.org. So that is podcast at city-journal.org. Thanks very much for listening, and thanks again, Tony. Thanks for joining us for the weekly 10 Blocks podcast featuring urban policy and cultural commentary with City Journal editors, contributors, and special guests.